You're listening to the Passion City Church DC podcast. To learn more about Passion City Church, including our gathering times in Atlanta and Washington, D.C., visit us online at passioncitychurch.com. So look around the room really quick at everyone. We don't trust each other. A 2014 survey by the National Opinion Research Center said that one, less than one-third of Americans believe most people can be trusted. This is the lowest it's been since the early 70s when they started doing the poll. And there was another study that I looked at recently from uh, Pew, and it was all about trust issues. And it said 58% of Americans believe that most people would try to take advantage of them given the chance. 62% believe most people only look after themselves. 71% are less confident in people now as they were two decades ago. So interpersonal trust, trust between us, you and me, uh, is the worst that it's ever been in America, but there's a larger trust problem, many would say, and that's institutional distrust, a lack of trust for authority. There's a Gallup poll. Uh, this is my last poll, and then I'm done. Um, a Gallup poll that they do every year that me- uh, measures confidence in a variety of institutions and places. And over the last 25 years, so just from the, last, uh, the late 90s until now, the number of people who have little or no confidence in Congress has more than doubled from 22% to 57%. People who have little or no confidence in religious leaders has tripled almost from 13% to 31%. And the same trends are true for education, law enforcement, big business, every branch of government, uh, tech companies, every type of news media, We don't trust our institutions around us. And it's likely that none of this shocks any of you. Uh, Every week, it feels like there's a new scandal that takes the national conversation. There's an uh, abuse of power that everyone's talking about. And on top of that, we have constant disinformation uh, about people from people. There's all of this fighting all over the ideological spectrum. And we all have a front row seat between our cell phones and social media and the 24-hour news cycle, this distrust has permeated our life in a way it never has before, and it's not getting any better. Uh, And whether it's warranted or not, and plenty of that distrust uh, is, it comes from terrible things that have been done. But whether it's warranted or not, we can't deny the negative effects of this level of distrust. Uh, Low levels of trust both on a personal level and a large scale in a nation, have terrible results. It leads to this failure to act, failure to organize, failure to sacrifice for the common good. Uh, It makes us more adversarial. We always think someone's working an angle on us. Uh, And ultimately, all of this leads to increased anxiety, depression, and this pervasive sense of hopelessness in our culture today. So whatever or whoever is to blame... This lack of trust is leaving us in this um, heavy, disoriented, hopeless place that we can't flourish in. There has to be a better way. And so today, in this text that I just read, Paul is going to show us one. If you've been tracking with us, uh, we've been moving through 1 Thessalonians. And Paul is writing a letter to a church uh, much like ours. It's from a variety of backgrounds that all came to this city. And this city is 
big and bustling and important in that area. But this community, the church, was united by a cause. That cause was the good news of Jesus. So as we approach the end of this book, Paul is becoming increasingly more practical. Uh, He's telling us, this is how you live for that cause in the middle of a culture that doesn't share your values. There's always going to be friction with the world. We've seen this throughout history. No matter what country, no matter what culture, no matter what context, there's always going to be friction between how we live and how the world lives. And we're called to live a different way. And this book, the Bible, is meant to help us navigate that. We just sang that we've seen how good it works. We sang that Jesus changes everything in our lives. So if we believe that, then we need to believe that this book can change how we react to our culture. So two weeks ago, Pastor Ben, he looked at how it changes our sexual ethic. What is different between us and the world? Last week, he talked about how it affects our jobs, our careers. And today, I'm going to talk about how our faith changes how we relate to our leaders. If we, the church, are united by that cause... We need a unified culture that points to that same cause. So first, why why bring this up? Why is Paul talking about this? Uh, If you remember the first three chapters, things were going really well in Thessalonica. All of it is Paul encouraging and thanking, and he's longing to see them, and everything's going great. So why would he add this? And how I look at it, I I believe it serves as a reminder that no matter how something looks on the outside, no church is perfect. Uh, Churches are filled with people and people are flawed. So what Paul is doing is he's saying, I can see that even though this church is great, even though incredible things are happening, there are cracks forming. I can see them forming. Uh, D.C., compared to a lot of cities, is a pretty old City And in the last four years, Becca and I, we've lived in some older homes. Uh, And you get used to, in these old homes, old home problems. Just weird quirks from these hundred-year-old townhomes that you live in. And uh, for instance, there's just strange drafts in the wintertime or in the summer where you're like, I don't know why it's so cold in this spot or why is it so hot in this spot? Uh, Why doesn't anything work? Uh, Or doors that don't fit right. Or right now, we're in an apartment. I hope my landlord doesn't listen to this. We're in an apartment where the floors kind of slope. It feels like we have a skate park like inside our house because the wooden floors are like slightly not level. And although the problems can be even funny at times, uh, they're symptoms of bigger issues. Usually problems like that tell us that, that there's something wrong with the foundation. And we can ignore that for a while. Uh, maybe decades. But eventually, if you don't fix those problems, if you don't renovate, the house will fall down. So Paul is demonstrating great leadership to identify these flaws before they become fatal. What he sees is that a lack of respect within this culture, within uh, Thessalonica and their church, is a sign of resentment. And if resentment increases, division will increase. And as the division increases, as cliques form, as people don't respect their leader, they don't like that person, so we're going to come over here and do our own thing. As that happens, um, the foundation of the church is getting shakier 
and shakier, and this really good thing can fall apart quickly. So they need to head things off now before a minor problem becomes a major one. And the same is true for us. Uh, We are approaching our fifth year anniversary as a church, which is incredible. Um, We have seen amazing things happen in the last five years. We're not divided. We're not falling apart. There's not a coup forming in the Howard basement right now. (laughs) Pastor Ben is preaching somewhere else today. We don't have him tied up backstage. Uh, Things are great. But Peter reminds us in one of his letters that we have an adversary that's waiting to pounce. We have an enemy that would love to divide this church with whispers and with an angry word here and an angry word there. And then one day you wake up and there's division. So this is preventative care. Uh, We want to do the work now to avoid problems later. We want to let the word of God guide us into unity. So today, Paul is going to answer three questions about honoring our leaders. Who are we meant to honor? How are we meant to honor them? And why we are meant to honor them? So we're going to start where Paul starts. Who? What do leaders look like? What makes a leader worthy of honoring, elevating, emulating? And he says it in verse 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. So his first request here is respect. And that word is to know. Um, What he's saying is identify or recognize the legitimacy of these people as your leaders. Uh, In other books, like the pastoral epistles, he expands further on, here are some qualifications, here are some characteristics of what it looks like to be a leader. But right here, he keeps the structure simple. Just respect those who emerged naturally. Uh, These aren't the coach's kids. They didn't get a degree for it. They weren't grandfathered in. They just stepped up. And that's important for us because often we view leaders as those people. They're set apart. They they have a title attached to them. They have a paycheck. But what Paul is showing with this broad definition is that all of us can lead if we have the character and if we rise to the occasion. So he he, uh, describes here one group with three traits. It's not three different groups. It's one group three traits. They labor among you, they're over you in the Lord, and they admonish you. And the first characteristic tells us a lot about these people. They labor among you. Those words carry the idea of um, growing weary because of the work. They're pushing themselves to extreme fatigue on your behalf. They're in it with you. They're among you. Uh, And what is that labor? It's not just that they're doing their own jobs amongst you. They're not outside shoveling, uh, they are spreading the gospel. The labor is the gospel. Earlier in Thessalonians, it says, for you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Paul constantly in the New Testament connects these ideas. Labor, gospel. They're not two different things. It's the same thing when Paul is talking about this. The labor is gospel work. It's toiling for the needs of the church. Uh, They're not building their own kingdom. They're not building their own platform or brand. The work isn't about them. It's about what Jesus has done in them, and they're doing something for the church. They're lifting up the church. A good leader doesn't sit back 
on their little throne and just tell people what to do. They're not just manipulating and bossing people around. A good leader is shoulder to shoulder in it with you in the battle. A good leader has more skin in the game than anyone. And we want this to be true of all of our leaders. Um, One of my first experiences in Washington, D.C., in, uh, I was 14 years old. I came here on a church trip, and we were serving in the city, and we were, we were in this shelter in the city that's still here today, and uh, we were working in the kitchen of this shelter, and we were serving food. We were cutting vegetables, and then they had us uh, deep cleaning this kitchen, and uh, I remember it was very strange. They had us deep cleaning near the end of the day, and then they had us stacking up this wall of non-perishables in a way that didn't really make sense. It was uh, boxes and cans. And we find out next day that a congressman was coming. A congressman was coming to serve here, uh, allegedly. And as soon as this man came in, it all was just a big photo op. Not for the shelter, it was a photo op for him. Uh, And he's getting pictures of him cutting. He's getting pictures of him cleaning stuff that was already cleaned the night before. Um, and finally, he ends the day taking a picture in front of this wall we had built and giving a quote and heading on his way. And it left a terrible taste in the mouth of our group uh, because in our minds, we we're like, this is a public servant, but he's using that idea of serving to benefit his image. He wasn't toiling for the community. He didn't care about the community. He cared about what people thought. But Jesus modeled serving for us uh, in the book, of Matthew, uh, James and John and their mom, this is the original nepotism, James and John and their mom, they come to Jesus and they say, hey, we want a promotion. Uh, We want to sit at your hands in power because to them, they saw leadership and they saw the power. They wanted that cabinet spot. But Jesus, uh, when all the disciples get angry about this, he tells them what leading is all about. In Matthew 20, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus, the Son of God, did not come to be served, but to serve. And in our church right here, we elevate leaders like this. Uh, our formalized leadership positions, we have a full-time staff and we have team leads who aren't um, paid. They're just uh, volunteering their time to work here or to volunteer. Um, and when it comes to our team leads, when the staff is getting together and we're saying, hey, we need some team leads, we need some new team leads, we're not sitting there thinking, well, who gives the most? Who has the biggest following? Who wants to be a leader? We're asking questions like, who is humbly serving? Who cares for this community? When it comes to leadership, the character always needs to precede the gifting. They need to be a servant first. Leading isn't lording over people, it's laboring among. We're not looking to be honored, we're looking to serve. Uh, So there's this servant mindset, and then he qualifies leadership further. He says, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord. Other translations might read, they care for you in the Lord, or they have charge over you in the Lord. 
Um, The key for us here is that little prepositional phrase, in the Lord. Their authority is rooted in the Lord. It's not their right. They didn't uh, purchase it. They didn't acquire it by some means. The authority comes from the Lord. So what does this mean for us? I think it means two things. One, leaders have a spiritual responsibility over the church given to them by God. Pastor Ben reminds our staff all the time, we are not event planners. We are a spiritual movement. And as leaders of a spiritual movement, we don't shrink away from the importance of that role and all that it entails. But it also serves as a reminder and a warning for leaders. Leaders aren't the ultimate authority. They might run their little franchise. They might even have their name on the deed, but someone else owns the company. Paul warned leaders, uh, the leaders of Ephesus in Acts 20. He said, therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink away from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And then he says to them, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his blood. And he goes on to warn them of bad leaders who are going to come in and wolves who are going to try to get into the flock. So he's talking about leaders. He's talking about these overseers that the Holy Spirit gave them this role. And what is their job? It's to labor. It's to follow Paul's lead. It's to uh, care for the church. And Paul makes it clear here. The church is a flock. It's people. And those people, as we sang today, were obtained by the blood of Jesus. That's valuable. That's not something to be taken lightly. If you in this room uh, aspire to lead or you already have spiritual authority in someone's life, whether it's uh, here in this house or in an organization or in your family even, you need to know spiritual leaders bear a heavy responsibility. Leadership is glorified because it's associated with a stage or power or fame or a green room or likes on on social media, but spiritual leading isn't about all of this stuff. Spiritual leading is about shepherding a flock, people that were bought by the blood of Jesus. And that's a high calling. And that should be a warning for many of us. A lot of those abuses of power come from people who don't realize that leadership is a heavy responsibility. Uh, Hebrews 13, 17, it echoes this text, and he's telling them to um, submit and obey their leaders. Why? So that the leaders can be exalted, so the leaders can make a buck? No, it says because they are are keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. An athlete can mess up, and they have to report to their coach. A, uh, you can mess up in your job and you might have a manager that you have to report to. And there can be consequences. But a spiritual leader reports to the sovereign Lord of the universe and gives an account for how they use or abuse that platform. Leaders need to take this responsibility seriously. And the third thing uh, that Paul says about our leaders, he says, we ask you brothers, respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. And admonish carries the meaning of instruct or warn or call out poor decisions. It's not to provoke. It's not to attack. It's not to belittle. It's with the aim of helping someone change for the better. 
when it comes to our relationships with leaders, with authority figures, a lot of our resentment stems from this one right here. Nobody wants to be called out. You hate it, I hate it, we all hate it, but we need it. It's an important task for a leader and it's an important need for all of us. We've seen this in every book, in every movie ever. There's this young protagonist and they, they might have talent, but they have no discernment on how to use that talent. And so they need that wise mentor, Mr. Miyagi. They need uh, Yoda. They need Dumbledore. They need Gandalf. They need other old wizards, I guess. They need someone to say, this is the right way. This is the better way. I know for me personally, like I said, I was really involved in a youth group growing up. Um, and for me, I, like many of you, I was obsessed with the idea of relationships. I wanted to be liked. I wanted the affirmation that comes with relationships. I was always going out of my way to be in a relationship. And it was really unhealthy at times. And I had leaders who would call me out on it. And I hated it. I thought they were attacking me. I thought they just didn't get it. They just didn't know. Um, they were coming to me and calling me out because they, didn't, they knew my behavior wasn't matching my words. It wasn't matching what I was saying about myself as part of this church. And years later, I worked alongside of a lot of those mentors at the same church with middle schoolers and high schoolers. And I remember on one trip, there was a kid just like me, just like I was. We're, going, we're on a charter bus on this trip, and it was an episode of The Bachelor. It was a mess. He's sending it out to every girl. Every girl's sending it right back to him. All, there's just all of this drama forming on this charter bus. And it got so bad after a few days that uh, my, buddy of the, my buddy who was my mentor, we had to pull this kid aside. And we had to say, hey, man, this is becoming a huge distraction. Like, we don't want this for you. We know you're better than some of the stuff that you're doing. And we had to just lovingly call him out. And then he goes on his way, probably mad at us. And my friend turned to me and just said, feel familiar? <laughs> and I was sick. It was instant conviction because I thought when I was that age, they were just out to get me. But they wanted the best for me. They wanted my actions to match my words. They wanted me to thrive, but I had to trust them. I had to listen to their wisdom. And the same is true for us today. And maybe for some of you, um, you feel that. You felt that bitterness towards a leader because they lovingly called you out on sin. Not to judge you, not to condemn you, but because they care about you. And you didn't honor them. You ghosted, you went on to the next thing, or you fought back. Uh, and my challenge for us today is if you feel this, to check your motivations. Are you resistant to authority because of something that was done to you, which is an understandable reason? Are you resistant uh, because they don't have your intentions in mind? Maybe they don't care. Or do you just love some sin in your life more than you love a leader? And so Paul first lays out this who, and that's important. We need to know the type of people that we elevate and that we follow if we want to have that healthy culture. That's important. But he switches to the how. How do we honor them? And that focus shifts from the leader to those who are being led. Um, and there's a reason for that. They have a job too. 
a good leader is ineffective if they aren't supported, if they don't have people laboring with them, if all they're doing is spending their time warding off attacks from the people who follow them. So these people might be leading, but these people, they're part of this. They have something to do. We are not consumers. We are not uh, fans. We are on the team, and we have a role to play in maintaining harmony. So the first request is acknowledge, and that's usually the easy part. Anyone can acknowledge who's in charge. I can go to an org chart or a website or look up their title and say, this person's in charge. Paul doesn't just want us to intellectually assent to who the leader is. He wants us to esteem them, honor, respect. Paul's saying, if you're part of this community, if you're part of this church, show them respect. Show them you care. Show them you support them. Show them that you're with them, that you're behind them all the way. And verse 13 gives us a loose framework for how. It says, esteem them very highly in love, which seems vague. This isn't a robust definition of honoring. He doesn't do what he does in other places in the New Testament sometime, which is craft this checklist of don't do that, do that, don't do that, do that. It's pretty vague. He only gives us those two qualifiers, esteem them very highly and do it in love. But I believe Paul is opening us up to a wide range of ways to show honor. He's not confining it to a narrow meaning. There's many ways to honor people. And we're going to look at a few uh, that I believe are scripturally sound ways to honor people. But first, what needs to be true no matter how we honor? Number one, esteem them very highly. And I love this word because Paul is smashing several Greek words together and he's intensifying the meaning. It conveys something like over the top above and beyond, out of abundance, excessively, exceedingly. It's all of these things. So however we are to honor people, we're going to go all out. We believe that everyone has dignity and is worthy of respect. But in this case, in this text, um, we're conveying the idea that when it comes to our spiritual leaders, we're going over the top. We're going all out to show them we care. Paul in Romans um, 1210 says we should outdo one another in showing honor, which I love. I'm a very competitive person. So I like that idea of, hey, you got to wipe the floor with those other guys who they say they're going to honor him. I'm like, no, I'm going to honor them more. I can be more honoring. Um, And we want to be generous with our respect. We don't want to scrape the bottom of the barrel. We don't want to give the bare minimum. This is how the world treats respect. If you earn it, if you meet my demands, if you give me something, I'll honor you highly. But for now, this is all you get. You are worthless to me until you prove your worth. Uh, One reason that we honor highly is because of that. It demonstrates worth. If we minimize or we withhold our honor from someone, we're saying you're not worthy of it yet. I don't know if you've ever gotten a morale-boosting benefit at work when you expected something better, and you get that email on Thursday morning, and they say there's a big surprise coming, and everyone starts talking about what the surprise could be, and, you know, Dave in accounting, he's like, you know, we hit our net profit, our best profits ever this year, like things are looking up, things are looking good, and 
someone else in HR, they're like, oh yeah, I think I heard like this is going to happen. And it keeps getting bigger and bigger in your mind. You're like, we're going to get bonuses. We're going to get time off. They're going to cater this big lunch for us tomorrow, all this stuff. And sure enough, end of the day comes 4 p.m. and you get that email that tomorrow's casual Friday and you can wear your blue jeans to work even though you've been wearing them for months and no one noticed. (laughs) And what's happening here is we don't feel cherished or respected or honored or loved because we think, hey, you're only showing us it with casual Friday. You are worth casual Friday jeans at work to me. And in your mind, you're like, well, I would have loved to be worth bonus to you for all of that work. Uh, But when the church honors, we don't want to hold back. Good leaders are not in it for the honor. We already talked about this. But we, as people who are following leaders, want to encourage them and lift them up by honoring them highly and showing them we care. Uh, The second way that we show honor, abundance, and love. We esteem them very highly in love. In this um, part of the passage shifted my perspective. There's a relational component to honoring someone that we cannot ignore. We're not an institution. We're not an organization. We are a family. And that changes everything within the church. It should play a massive part in how we love each other, how we encourage each other, how we care for each other, being part of a family. The world tells us to honor people because of their title or their power or fear of them or what they can give to you, their fame. And some of those reasons can be fine. Uh, We should honor people in certain settings. If a very famous person came to me, I would act different to them than I would someone else maybe. Um, But that's cheap. That's a cheap way of honoring. And when the power is gone, when the title is gone, when they have nothing to give to you, do you still feel the same way? Do you treat them the same? Or do you just have a what can you do for me, what have you done for me lately mindset? But in here, in the church, in the household of God, we honor because of love. We have respect for each other, And we have respect for our leaders because of love. It's not predicated on their status or what they can do for us. It's an overflow of our familial love for them. Paul's reminding us here, this isn't blind submission. I'm not telling you, I put them in charge so you have to listen to them. We're esteeming them because of our love. I have a 10-month-old baby, River. Uh, Right now, my authority is meaningless to her. There are no combination of words that I can say to convince her to do anything. She doesn't understand. Uh, And she doesn't realize it yet, but when I tell her to do something or not to do something, it's because of love. It's because I care for her. I don't want her to crawl over to the heater and touch it because I love her. And my hope and my prayer is as she gets older, she will see that. She won't see me as this demanding tyrant trying to control her life. She'll see me as a loving father who cares. And I hope she responds in kind. I hope that even if we disagree on things, she'll say, I respect you, I honor you, I love you, and so I'm going to listen to you, and I'm going to respond in love. 
And I want us to linger here for a minute. When we discuss these topics, I don't think our minds always turn to love, but Paul stresses it. He stresses that family bond. Do you view church that way? Do you view uh, your leaders as brothers and sisters, or is this a social club or an event? Because it's supposed to be a family we belong to. Do you view our pastor, do you view Pastor Ben as family, or do you view him as a resource that you can tap into when you want? That isn't to condemn anyone. I've felt that way in church sometimes, but I'm saying it as an invitation to change your perspective, to come be a part of a family. And I know some families, some churches are bigger than others, and it can be intimidating and it can be hard. But that is what the church is meant to be. It's meant to be a family, and we want you to be part of it. And so when we think of this practically, how do we show our love? How do we um, honor leaders in our life? I think there's a lot of different ways, and I want us to talk about a few. Um, Prayer. It's one of the easiest ways you can esteem a leader this week is to pray for them. Pray for them. Don't pray that they would talk about the thing you want them to talk about, that they would condemn the people you want them to condemn, that they would do what you want them to do. Pray for your leaders. Pray for Ben and Donna. Right now, they're serving on the other side of the country in a really cool um, situation that they're able to serve in. Pray for them this morning. Pray that their, their, their ministry is benefiting the people they're talking to. Pray for their family. It's hard. It's heavy to lead like they do. Pray for them. If you're a door holder here, pray for your team lead by name. Uh, They're doing what they're doing for free. They're volunteering their time. Pray for them. Pray for our staff. We have a small team. Uh, There's less than 15 of us, and I've gotten to know all of them really well, and I see the burdens that all of us carry in every Sunday, every weekday. Uh, the things that sometimes we have to say, Lord, I, I know this hasn't changed, but I'm going to leave it to you and I'm going to go serve other people. Pray for our staff. Show me love them. And as you pray, more and more, your perspective is going to change. You're going to start to deeply love and care for people that you pray for constantly. The focus is going to turn from me, from the self, from the inside, outward. It's going to turn to other people, other people's burdens, other people's lives. And think of other ways you can honor people this week. Some of them might come easily and naturally for you. Encourage people. Uh, If you have the means or resources to bless someone in an extraordinary way, do it. Or just write them a note. Tell them what they mean to you. Hebrews 10.24 says, Let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Tell a leader what Jesus has done in your life because of um, what they have done for you. Uh, We do something as a staff and with door holders called Jesus Stories, where people say, this is what's been going on in my life. This is how Jesus has changed my life. Uh, And it puts wind in our staff's sails. And sometimes we hear one from months later where someone's like, hey, this is this really cool thing that happened to me four months ago. And we're like, why didn't you tell us? That's incredible. Just this week, the last few weeks, a few people have told me some about CORE and how CORE has um, 
been a great example in their life and changed their faith. And it meant so much to me because it was this person's way of telling me the work was worth it. And we don't always get to see the fruit of our labor, and that's fine. But it's amazing to hear that the work was worth it. If you want to honor your leaders, uh, imitate them. We just talked about all these incredible treats, uh, treats, traits. <laughs> Humility, a servant mindset, they're laboring. Imitate that. Serve other people in your life as you have been served. Uh, come be a part, part of what our, we're doing. Maybe you're someone who's come for a while and you've checked this out, and maybe a way you can honor some leaders or someone, a spiritual authority in your life who invited you here, is to come be part of what we're doing, serving the city, serving each other. And finally, one last one that I hinted at earlier, uh, one of the most difficult ones is when someone admonishes you, when a leader lovingly tells you about some sin in your life that needs to change, respect them. Don't lash out. Don't gossip. Don't get angry. Don't attack that person because that's what the world wants us to do is fight back. But we don't do this. Our leaders, uh, when they admonish us, we honor them in love. And finally, Paul gives us the why, and he does so by reminder. He says, esteem them highly in love because of their work. Leadership is a big responsibility. Anyone can be uh, the Monday morning quarterback on the day after the big game that says, well, I would have done it this way. I, I could do it better. I could have caught that. I could have thrown that. Uh, when we have that hindsight and that overhead view, all of us think we could do it better. And the work of a leader can look glamorous and easy, but as we said, it's heavy because it deals with a flock. It deals with people and spiritual things. So Paul's reiterating and reminding us, um, I'm not asking you to honor them because of their social status or blindly submitting to them or because you get something from it. I'm asking you to honor them because of their work because they're toiling and laboring in the gospel for you. They have been given a task from God and they're laboring on your behalf. And that is worthy of respect. That doesn't mean they're perfect. And it's fine to disagree. I don't want anyone to leave here thinking that I'm saying you need to blindly submit. It's fine to disagree. Leaders aren't free from criticism. And if the church wants to thrive, it has structures to keep leaders accountable, and it's open to receiving loving feedback. But our tendency is to think it's our job to criticize. We just sit on the sideline keeping our little report card, and we're never satisfied because they can't reach our standard. And as we do this, resentment builds, and it'll lead us to undermine or form little cliques or divide or cause havoc on our way out the door, and a relationship can't thrive like this. Becca and I, uh, we've been married for, I should have done the math ahead of time, six years. Um, And there are some major things within a marriage that if one of us did, it would require a conversation. We would have to address it. We would have to fix it. But we don't walk around tallying up the minor things, no matter how annoying they might be. We don't withhold honor from each other or love from each other because of all these small things. We don't let our relationships can be controlled by petty things. So major things might need to be addressed, but minor things aren't worth tearing the house down. 
We don't give or withhold support based on what someone could do for us or if they checked all the boxes or not. We look at the big picture. We look at their work. We look at their heart. We look at their character. We look at how much they they care and they toil and they labor for this house and we respond by showing them that we're with them, that we care, that we love them, we're thankful for them and we honor them. I want to end um, where Paul ends. His final request uh, hints at the result of these efforts. When you have leaders who embody this, who lead like this, and you have people following them that do this, that honor like this, that love like this, here's the result. It reads, be at peace among yourselves. And the importance of peace is scattered throughout the Bible. Uh, Psalm 133, how good and pleasant is it when brothers dwell in unity. Ephesians 4.3 instructs them to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. The point of this is peace. When we look at the landscape of the world today, all of the division, all of the distrust, all of the the disinformation and hating and anger and, and everything we see in the culture, it's suffocating us. And you can see why peace matters to Paul. And the truth is, if we refuse to do these things, if we refuse to be leaders who lead like this, if we refuse to be followers that honor and love our leaders, then we won't have peace. We will look just like the world, just like DC, if we sow the same culture that they're sowing. And as believers, as this house I want one thing for us. I want us to continue to choose the opposite, even when it's hard. I want us to choose honor over disrespect, unity over division. I want us to choose serving other people over being served. Because when the world looks out for number one, we want to look out for others' interests. When the world wants to say, hey, what's in it for me? I want to say, how can I help you? And people will notice. We're going to stand out in a culture that doesn't have this peace, doesn't have this unity, doesn't have this mindset. And when they see the church and they see how we serve each other, love each other, and honor each other, they're going to say, how? How do they live like that? And our only answer is going to be to point at our Savior and say, that is how. We don't have a secret technique. We don't have a five-step plan for you, but we have him, a kind and humble and loving servant who came for us. In this church, we believe that we are all beautiful in the image of God, but we're all broken because of our sin. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love that he loved us, sent his son to live the perfect life that we could not, to die the death that we deserved. And after he rose from the grave and conquered death, we now have a spirit that is changing our hearts when we put our faith in him. And we are being knit together into a family, not an organization, into a family. In this family, as imperfect as we all are, we have been saved by grace, through faith into that man. And we are going to chase after him. He is the cause that unifies us. 
and we are going to display a culture that glorifies Him. If you were encouraged by today's talk, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever you stream your podcasts. To experience other talks, videos, and live gatherings, visit us online at passioncitychurch.com or download the Passion Movement app. And again, thanks for listening to the Passion City Church DC podcast.